I think it's doubling down on my strengths and not worrying about what anybody thinks about my weaknesses. Yeah. Like not having that fear. I have a thousand weaknesses and I don't care if anybody calls me out on it. <laughs> I just have, I'm a one trick pony. I'm literally a one trick pony, but I just double down on those things over and over and over again. And I have no fear. Wheel Publishing. This is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Cody Creelman Covet. Cody, our second Canadian in a row, is Covet extraordinaire, growing up near Beaver Lodge, Alberta, on a commercial cattle operation and attending the University of Alberta, where he received his Bachelor of Science in Agriculture with distinction in 2006. He followed this up with his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine in 2011 from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Soon after, Dr. Creelman joined Veterinary Agri-Health Services as Associate Vet and is now managing partner with professional interests including pathology, large animal surgery, feedlot medicine and the production of abscess and gore spattered videos for YouTube. These videos and his talent for crafting together the story of his everyday life with great imagery and upbeat feel and awesome music have elevated him to become a bona fide veterinary YouTube star with farmers, vets and students alike. Cody has amassed an impressive 30,000 subscribers with over 6.5 million plays of his content. Notably, over 2.5 million of those plays are of exploding cow abscesses, so there are clearly some very sick puppies embedded within his audience. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is my very own Vetex Graduate Mentoring Community. If you're a practice owner and want to offer your new vets a greater level of support so they grow faster and stay longer with your practice, then jump onto my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash vetex, and learn how we are helping graduates across the world thrive in practices just like yours. Back to Cody. And aside from his obvious love of life, one of the things that most impresses me about him is his ability to consistently produce high quality, high volume content. He averages a whopping two video blogs and two podcasts each week. The guy is a genuine content monster, and he does this while running three businesses and bringing up a young family too. So if you are having a hard time wondering whether you might be able to publish an article each month through your blog, you're going to do well to watch Cody's moves closely. You will learn a thing or two. So with that said and done, let's not waste any further time and jump into the interview. It gives me enormous pleasure to bring you my conversation with Dr. Cody Creelman, Covet Extraordinaire. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am in South Carolina. We're in the, not deep south, but we are certainly in the southern states of the U.S. here at South Carolina at Uncharted Veterinary Conference, hosted by our good friend and frequently referenced individual, Dr. Andy Rourke. And this is a little conference here, which we're having a, a gay old time at. And I am joined by somebody I've been looking forward to, not just bringing on the podcast, but actually meeting for quite some time. So Cody Creelman, Cowvet. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So normally where we go is we just start with a little bit of background on you and where you are 
you know, how you got to where you are. And let's like take it back. Like, how come? I think you know you've done a couple of degrees. Yep. Started out in agriculture and moved into veterinary medicine. So maybe take us back to pre-vet days. Let's just go back in the dim and distant times. It's not that dim and distant for yeah. you. So still look like a relatively youthful soul. Take us back to the decision making. Like, how did you end up in your direction, in your niche, in, in your career? Yeah. So I guess I'll take it even a little bit further back. I was a farm boy, born and raised in rural Canada. My dad was a banker turned cattle buyer, and my mom was the farmer's daughter. And I grew up on a cow-calf ranch. Uh, Every day was just working with cows. I was in 4-H, doing chores after school. That was my life. So you were born and immediately lived on the farm and just worked there from the start. Absolutely. So, like, what was your interest? How did that spark that? And what did a day in your life when you were growing up look like? So I always have this super corny joke that I don't play sports and I didn't do good in school because I was too busy doing chores. Like, that was my impression of my childhood. Getting home from school every day, not doing a lick of homework, and just doing chores literally until dark. So the chores would be around the farm and and just hard work. Exactly. Okay. And tell me, like, so your parents, were they, I was going to say cattle drivers and, you know, like they, they worked you hard or was it a disciplinary? Like, uh, what was the regime? I think it was what just, was I think it was mostly out of necessity. Like it was right. just a lot needed to be done on the farm. And my dad had an off-farm job being a cattle buyer and it was just me and my mom basically out so you're running the farm, doing it, age. right? It just, all this work needed to be on. So if it wasn't me helping, then it was just my mom while my dad was doing his off-farm job. So what age were you effectively, you know, running the farm? Imagining, you know, as a three-year-old, you're probably not that much help around the farm just yeah. yet, but... So 11, 12, 13, just doing, like, driving tractors and trucks and doing all of, yeah, all of the routine work. All the Absolutely. routine work. And were you sucked into the business side of it as well at that point? No, or? I wouldn't say necessarily on the business side, just like you the were just day-to-day task. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But then when I was 13, my parents actually got a divorce. And okay. that was really a pivotal point for me because I had never really considered anything past the farm, right? That was just my life right. day in, day right. out. So my parents got divorced and I moved back to my mom's hometown with my mom and my little sister. And after that, I didn't have those chores anymore. I didn't have that responsibility. And I ended up doing really well in school. Like all of a sudden I was an academic Uh, just overnight. So you'd just been so nose to the grindstone with the farm. Exactly. That the school was passing you by or, you know, there just wasn't time. So that just wasn't a part of Exactly. There just wasn't time. It just wasn't part of it. And now I had that extra time. So I was putting a little more work into my books and and that was it. You know, so your parents go through a divorce at that age and my parents are divorcees as well. Slightly older for me. I was at university. But what sort of impact? That's quite a, a fragile age. You know, your early teens for that to happen. Are you an only child or if you go? No, I had a, a younger full sister. Yep. Uh, nine years my junior. Junior. Yeah. Okay. And how did that impact you guys? Like, has that had an impact on your the way that you think about life or the way you conduct yourself or how you go about your business in any way? I certainly think so. Like everything with environment, we only have two things, our genetics and our environment, right? Right. So I'm sure that it absolutely did. I saw part of that as what my parents' relationship was. Uh, I saw what life on the farm was. I saw how things can change. And then after the divorce, I was just now it's my chance to make my own life. And I didn't have that before. 
And so then you move back to your your mom's hometown. You, how does the transition go when you you know you, you discover this this grey matter inside and it's not right. all muscle? You've got some grey matter in your skull. Like how does that transformation happen? And and how does the journey take you from there? Yeah. So it, it was certainly slow. I then had more doors open for me, more possibilities. I'd never thought about veterinary medicine at all because I just, I didn't even think, have at 13 especially, like I wasn't even thinking ahead. And then by the time that I hit 16, I had a girl on my school bus who had done a volunteer work experience at the local clinic and I knew her quite well. And she just said, hey, Cody, I know you. Why don't you go to this clinic? Why don't you just do a work experience at this clinic? Because she thought that I would enjoy it. What did she see in you that made her say that? Do I think? don't know. That's that's a good question. Like, she just knew me well. I helped on their farm a lot. Right. As unpaid labor. Like, I just enjoyed animals. I enjoyed right. working with the ranchers. I was just... I guess she could see that in me. She could see the the prospects for you she's a good careers advisor it turns out absolutely so i walked into that vet clinic and i remember being hooked instantly i'd never even really been to a vet clinic before like my family growing up with our dogs and cats we just didn't use a vet very often right so then going into a vet clinic and like experiencing it firsthand i was hooked instantly and the thing that i loved the most was the chaos yep i loved never knowing what was going to walk through that door i loved yep. every single aspect of it i loved not knowing if there it was going to be a uterine prolapse or a bull semen test or a, a pile. I had no idea what the day was going to unveil. And for me, that's like my core chemistry. And I don't even think I, I knew that at the time. It just clicked with me that that chaos, because the worst possible job for me is to know exactly what I'm going to do that entire day. Have you ever worked in any jobs outside of this that you've explored other facets to your interests? And have you ever worked in jobs where you were just bored out of your mind? Like I worked quite a lot of retail jobs and in kitchens. Not whilst I was at university, but on holidays when I wasn't on rotations, I would I would always be cooking or I would be selling stuff in a right. retail store. Yeah, absolutely. So the other interesting thing about my journey is after that first experience in the vet clinic when I was 16, I didn't step foot into another clinic until I was graduated vet school. And give me a sense, is that same in, because this is in Canada, and yeah. so you you do the agriculture degree first, how That's many years did you spend doing four. that? Four. And then a veterinary degree, five on top of that? Another four after Another that. Another four, okay, yeah. so that's eight years, so you're now 24? Yeah, and I even had a gap year because I didn't get into, I didn't get into vet school after my final ag degree. Okay, so... I'm always interested in gap years because I think when I was at university, people who took gap years, we had this sense that they were either had too much money for their own goods or they were, you know, they were too lazy and didn't want to get into work. And looking back on my career now, I see that as an epic mistake on my part or as the, uh, the thoughts of the people I was around. But I think my parents just wanted me to get the hell out of the house and in, into some form of education quickly because <laughs> I was not particularly academic or one who enjoyed school or education that much. So a gap year would have been potentially quite destructive for me. But I actually look back and recognize now the amount that you can learn from doing that. So where did your gap year take you and and what did you learn on that? Yeah, so my gap year was by necessity. I just physically did not get into vet school. So, and I was, I was at the end of the road. So that gap year was pretty spectacular. It, it ended up kind of transitioning me into where I practice now, and that's feedlot medicine. So I'd spent half of the year working on pipeline, like an actual like grunt, hauling pipe around, hauling propane tanks around, putting 
pipe that transfers oil and gas into the earth after doing a, a whole degree. Like that was the job that I picked. I was just trying to pay off debt. And that was my whole career before that. Like I had always just worked grunt jobs. I had worked construction. Yep. I had worked oil field. Like that was the thing that I did yep. to pay off all of my student debt. So I just, I went back to that. I know it's easy money and did it. So you, you didn't go, you finished your agriculture degree. You were somewhat involved there, but much more yep. manual, you know, again, putting your back in muscle jobs. And how did it then... Look, what did you take away from that year and how did you then get into vet school? I take it you reapplied. Yeah, I, I reapplied and after the pipelining, I went into a feedlot job. That was my first exposure to, to like high, large scale food animal production. So yeah. I was a pen checker, like a cowboy in a feed yard. And that kind of set up the rest of my career for where my interest in veterinary medicine lied. But that gap year, I had just reapplied. And just by whatever reason, I ended up getting in that year. I did nothing special besides work. Just I didn't know what else to do, but just keep reapplying. But that gap year, like I have the same thing. I was always super programmed, super crazy to just like onto the next step, onto the next step, right. onto the next step. Right. But looking back, you're so young, like the patience that you should have, like take that time. Everybody should take that time and, and really figure themselves out. And, and I'm like probably the worst person in the world to say that because I think I had everything figured out. I just needed yeah. to do the work. But looking back, like I needed to take a breath. I needed to figure everything out. I should have. Why do you think they said yes second time round and not first time round? Did you I ever honestly, get feedback on that? I honestly have no idea. That was the only time that I had got an interview. I had never even got an interview to that point. So I, I kind of thought, and maybe it was arrogance, that if I at least got the interview, I knew that I could sell myself. Got it. Okay. And then that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. How did the conversation, what did they ask you at the interview? Oh, all kinds of things. So it was three people uh, at that university. They It's three people and they interview you for uh, about 90, uh, sometimes 60 minutes. Yeah. So an interview for 60 minutes. And they just really wanted to know about my experience as like a farm boy, right? right. They were just super interested that I had all this experience within yes. agriculture. So they were just really playing off of that over and over again. And so... You wind up in vet school. How was your journey through vet school? Was it a fun experience for you? Like, how did you experience it? So when I got that letter, I bawled like a baby. Like, I was full <laughs> streaming, crying. Like, when I talk about it, I well up thinking. I full on cried like a baby. When I walked into that school, I thought I was in Hogwarts. Like, I thought that this was where wizards were made. That I had left behind the muggles and I was going to be a wizard. And, like, my school was... Is not like the nicest looking school. It was built in the 60s. It's just bricks. It's not a spectacular castle. Right. But this was Hogwarts to me. This was a place of absolute magic when I started walking through those halls. But when I got in, I instantly fell lost. Okay. I was so incredibly lost because what I had realized is my goal had been mutated and turned into this monster of my only goal being wanting to get into vet school. It wasn't to become a veterinarian. Right. And now I had done that. Right. I had done that, that thing and I had now no goal in life. My goal wasn't anything past getting into vet school and I need that goal in my life. I need something like that. I need that like burning desire, that feeling in my stomach, that time's fleeting away. And I didn't have that after first year. How did that manifest? So I, what you're saying there really does chime with me. And, and I was having another conversation recently where 
Yeah, I remember clearly. I had a, a bottle of the cheapest, most awful Asti Spumante like martini wine, which I think I'd probably like stolen or secreted away from my parents' alcohol stash. Or it was it was a Christmas gift that nobody wanted to touch. But to me, this was the best vintage champagne you could imagine, and I had it my second shelf from the top of my, my bedroom at school and I'm like when I get into vet school I'm going to open that champagne and I'm going to drink that and of course you know like I'm 15, 16 I was 13 when I actually decided I wanted to go to vet school so you know this is like I've had this it's like this four years I've had this bottle of awful wine <laughs> which I know and I was I'd imagine this big party and all these things none of which happened whenever I got in there but I, what you just said there really resonated was what was the next goal there you yeah know? that was the big question right what was driving me to do all of that work and I figured it out in the end right but I needed that thing that thing that's going to make me not go to that dinner that thing that's going to keep me studying that extra hour right I, that feeling that feeling that I thrived on through undergrad I needed that do you have a process via which that either you you know you found a new purpose because you do a lot of stuff or if not then have you found a way of of establishing a direction and a purpose that you find reliable now well my method is really just digging deep in those times that i'm feeling that way so within vet school all i did was dug really deep and really self-reflected a lot and just thought really hard on that problem And I usually try to come up with a solution that's the simplest at the time. So with a lot of self-reflection, trying to tweak that self-awareness as best as I can and come up with the most simple solution. So so my solution in vet school, it sounds super silly, but it was become the best possible vet student that I could be. And that didn't mean like get the best marks. Like that wasn't my goal, but it was to have the best possible vet student experience that I could, that I was going to go to rounds. I was going to create networks. I was going to create real relationships with professors. I was going to have that experience as best as I possibly could. How did you go about creating those networks and forming those relationships? So if there are any vet students listening um, or people that struggle with networking generally, what things worked for you and what things did not work for you? Yeah, so my biggest thing was just showing up. Just showing up for everything, right? Do you mean physically or just mentally? Or, oh, or both, 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 absolutely. So my school did this thing, they did Monday through Thursday rounds, large animal rounds where anybody could show up at 8 a.m. and the professors would grill the, the interns and the residents. And it was open to the entire school, but there was such a small handful of students that went down to rounds. But just by showing up, you got that FaceTime, that recognition from your props, from, from the interns. And I did that for years. I was one of the very few students that did it just over and over again. And it was so amazing because just that recognition and just those small conversations, being there, being engaged, asking questions propelled my final year to such an extreme level because I was getting asked to do things that nobody else was getting asked to do. I was euthanizing horses off the needle in the breezeway as a student because they had trusted me. I was getting called out of class by a Scottish cow professor to go look at a coo that has lymphosarcoma. <laughs> like, But that would have never happened if I didn't just put in that work. I roamed the, the hallways and the breezeways like I was a ghost. Every lunch, every day after school, every time that I was there studying and needed a break, I was spending time in those clinics just creating that FaceTime over and over and over again. How did you add value? Because, you know, you, you could do that and be in people's way. So I get the sense that that's not what you did at all. How did you add value and 
Andy once told me, like when he first started showing up, very similar thing with vet partners. And he just, as, as the VBMA chapter president, or you know, the, one of the founders of the VBMA, the student organization here in North America, he started showing up to vet partners. You know, he didn't have a subscription or anything. He's showing up and vets be like, who are you? And, you know, and that's, that was the start of his journey. So how did you add value and not get in the way? And- yes. Yeah, so I think with the value, these are teachers, right? One of their biggest jobs and biggest thrills in life is to impart that knowledge. So by showing up, you're doing that and showing that enthusiasm. But I was also trying to be anticipating any of their needs as well. I was going out there and helping clean up and offering to do things and assisting to hold animals and, you know, just trying to be as helpful and courteous as I possibly could. Just being a good human gets you a, a long ways. But I'll tell you my fourth year hack. So this was something that I took to the extreme. I was the biggest kiss ass in fourth year. Yep. Okay. I, and I'm not lying one little bit, carried around boot polish with me the entire year. And I would polish professors and residents and interns cowboy boots. So I came from a pretty cowboy school, right? Right, right, right. right. But I was like, I was literally the shine boy. Yeah. And I also memorized everybody's Starbucks order. So I still know like which surgeons need, want a quad vanilla latte from Starbucks. Like I still remember that. But it was just kind of, it was providing as the value that I could as the position dictated, right? I was a huge kiss ass, but it afforded me so many opportunities. You were standing out. And I have crowd, no shame you? about it. No, no. But I mean, it clearly it served you very well to do so. So no, that is all good. And I'm just interested in what advice you would have for anybody, not just necessarily in that situation, but just generally what's coming across to me from our conversation already is that you are not somebody who is afraid of hard yakka, as our Aussie cousins would say. You're comfortable in an environment of change and of chaos, and you go out of your way to assist and add value to other people. Have you taken that forward on your life? Like, those sound like they come from a solid set of values or principles that you were in, you know, embodied with. Like, where did you develop those principles from and that work ethic? I think what it is, I don't know where, where it came from, but I think my biggest strength is actually just recognizing what my strengths are okay, and doubling down on those, right? I'm terrible at 99% of things out there that would make like a, a person successful. But I just have a few moves, right? I just have a few moves and I just <laughs> and you, double you, down you on those. You do them really well. Right? I, knew, I knew in university when I was struggling to get really high grades to get yep. into vet school that I wasn't going to be the smartest. Yeah. But I figured out how to work the hardest, right? Like right. that was my only move. I only, only yeah. have, ever have so that I move. I worked people. And then attitude, right? Like, and that has carried on 100% through vet school and then now to me as a service provider, Right. Right. I go in there with a positive attitude to provide value and to work hard. That's all I can do. And I'm just trying to provide my customers now with the type of customer service experience that I expect everywhere that I go. And I'm often disappointed when I do get a customer service experience in general, right? I very rarely feel like I get the same service that I provide as a customer service I think that's something a lot of us vets would have a sense of like I think we go above and beyond in ways that other businesses have no idea Uh, and that's even at the baseline level so when you take it to the max um, that's a nice segue into what you do now and I think people that, that, you know, this would be an odd conversation for some to think that we're having because of your background and, and my background. 
But so let's talk about your work with the veterinary agri health services business. I know you you do that. You have some mixed veterinary practices that yep. you're partner in. Talk me through the landscape because you have multiple fingers and multiple pies at the minute. I have a hard time even keeping up with that. So what you do with the, the feedlot business, you've got your mixed practices, you're selling merch like crazy, I hope, when you're your cow stuff. You've got a busting busy YouTube channel that's crushing it. Um, talk me through what the landscape for Cody Creelman looks like right for now. For sure. So my clinical home is Vet Agri Health Services. So that's the beef cattle yeah. practice. We serve uh, Western Canada working on cow-calf ranches and feedlots. Our climb base is from 30 cows all the way up to 30,000 cows, and we're all-encompassing from that perspective. Uh, consulting right up to the technical services that a cow vet's expected. I'm a partner in that practice. Uh, it's very vibrant. It's uh, very well-respected, uh, considered you know one of the top cow vet practices yes. within Western Canada. Yeah. So that's that's my clinical home. That's where I practice. That's my day-to-day in terms of if I'm going to be doing clinical work. Yep. I, I, I do the cow stuff. Right. Uh, and then after that, then I also have, yeah, the Mosaic Veterinary Partners. That is kind of a, it's a separate business, but it certainly is a bit of a spin-off as to what we wanted to do with our core practice. And that was just a diversification of what we were doing. You know, when we're so specialized in one industry, that's a commodity industry, you're certainly at the mercy of the market. My partners had lived yep. through a very down time within the beef cattle sector. Yep. 2003, BSE was found in the Canadian cow herd. That shut down our borders to the U.S. Our industry almost collapsed. Yep. So we were always kind of watching that and, and wanting to make sure that we diversified, but into what, right? Into what? And that came back down to that self-awareness in, in us wanting to practice into mixed animal. Yeah. So mostly what you're doing is very production line intensive, or is it mostly just fertilization and just keeping the cycle of food production animal going with the feedlot business? What's the difference between that and then the mosaic, which is more mixed? So I guess you have small, some smallies. Do you have equine work in there as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's just a general mixed practice. Absolutely. And you have three of those yes. practices going. Yeah. How did you wind up? Did you and your partner look to buy something or did you set them up from scratch? Talk me through that. Yeah, so we purchased those. We mauled around different ideas as to what we were going to do for the yeah. diversification. Were we going to set up Calvet practices all over? Yeah. Or were we going to invest into gem businesses? And and the demographic, I think it's very similar within the uh, US. Gem businesses? Gem, like the great businesses, right? Well-respected, as opposed to, oh, to ge- okay. gem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and would that, what, what would an example of a, a gem business be? So, so outside of the veterinary so sector well, completely? Yeah, well-respected and profitable. Like okay. that, that's what we're looking for. So gem- just buying and you would buy them and have somebody else run those businesses for you so this is an investment no like it, we're running them i guess as a management consulting group as well so so we are purchasing and managing and this is within the veterinary sector yes so, okay. absolutely cool so the, the term gem businesses wasn't one i'd come across before so, <laughs> just I like really it. good one yeah so well run well respected exactly. so you're buying at the top end of the exactly the spectrum yeah so why for you would it be important to choose there? I've done quite well buying, maybe a better description would be coal businesses, right. where you buy things that are broken, were well respected, but have been broken and now have very little value in them, but they still have a customer base. Quite easy to turn those around and yeah. sell them. 
fairly quickly at a real fairly good profit. Why was it important to you to buy the gem business and keep that running? Well, certainly as, as us just starting out within this kind of venture, we wanted to make sure that we weren't getting ourselves in too deep. We wanted to be able to, to go in and know that these are well-respected practices that just aren't going to crumble as soon as, as, soon as so we touch them. So you keeping the team on... Exactly. You have, a, you know, your former partners selling out and leaving. Exactly. Or, yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of the time, the goodwill in these practices would walk out the front door when that happened. How did you protect that goodwill when you're taking over those practices? It was definitely a, a long process, right? We yep. don't just walk in day one and tell everybody the way that it's going to be. Yep. It is certainly a massaging of the employees there, yep. interacting with the clients while we're there as that process is happening, ensuring that, that the clients are being told the correct message from the employees. It's certainly just patience with that, going low and slow as best as we can. Okay. And just try not, yeah, because the best thing is not to upset that business when it's going well. Exactly. How is corporate medicine progressing in Canada? Is that. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, on the small animal side, within every major center, they're swallowing up practices like mad. It has not happened on the mixed animal side. So, you still have a sensible multiple you can buy a practice at, and it's. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the opportunity is really out there. So, within mixed practice, I think it would be similar to the small side within the urban center. But these are practitioners at the end of their career that have failed to set up a succession plan. Yes. And they're really between just closing the door and walking away or reaching out and trying to find somebody who's willing to invest in their practice. Yeah, 100%. Okay, I can see the opportunity there now. Sticking with the... I heard and correct the quote if it's wrong and reattribute if it's not even you that said so, but I was a pretty full-bore meat lover for most of my 42 years like 39 and a half of them for certain and you know my favorite meal would have been a a steak and you know chips and a or yeah probably chips i was going to say baby potato but i'm not kidding anybody you know bottle of uh some malbec and you know some salad that was my idea of an amazing night in and eventually i went on a journey and wind up vegan but one of the things that i've had conversations with and people a colleague I know in, or an acquaintance I know in Brighton that he's very much into the clean meat or the franken meat or like whatever it's got a lot of different names but the laboratory grown meat side of production and I'd heard and this is a bit that you can kill if you like but I'd heard that you or somebody else in the cattle medicine thought that you would be the last generation of cattle veterinarians because the industry changed like you could see the trend going where people would be consuming meats that were grown you know in, in laboratories not using a grass conversion process to muscle. I think we need a whole nother podcast episode just to talk about this I'm it's super pa- I'm topic. super passionate about it to yeah speak on it yeah and it's not so much that I think that clean meat lab-grown meat cellular agriculture is necessarily the thing I just speak to Every single industry in the history of the world has been disrupted by technology. Yes. Period. 100%. So to be so naive to think that I'm in an industry that will never be disrupted by technology is ludicrous, right? Is daft, It could be anything. It could be 
a Nalgene bottle, like a water bottle attached to your ribs that has protein and carbohydrates that you refill once a week. Yeah. It could be humans that photosynthesize, or it could be like Star Trek, where you have the synthesizer, right? That's the green, the green, the yeah. green alien lady that <laughs> exactly, James C. Kirk exactly. enjoyed but, meeting. But there's been every single industry in the entire world has been disrupted by technology. And, and this, is, this is one of the technologies that yeah. has the potential. So that's what I speak to a little bit is I say like, you know, agriculture is not perfect. Yep. Okay. Agriculture is not perfect. I always back things up and, and say, why does it exist the way that it exists? Yep. Like, why does that actually exist? Yes. And it's, I guess for me, I like to boil that down to make people think as to, as to why. Yeah. So for me, there was a shift of the agrarian farmers during the world wars away from farms into cities on, on the front lines. And there was this drastic need to now produce protein yeah. in order to feed the troops and feed the people in the cities, right? Yes. That's the why. We knew how to industrialize, so we put the food animal sector into industrialization. Yeah. We did it out of necessity, and I yeah. would have made the same choice, too. If you have to choose between the welfare of an animal and the welfare of a starving kid in a city or a man out on the front lines, you're going to choose the human. You know, that's a veterinarian saying that, but yeah. it's a human at the end of the yeah. day, right? Yeah. So we put animals into industrialization setting at the detriment of their welfare there's no question yeah at the detriment of their welfare but we had to we had no other choice and then after the wars we had also discovered a lot of things like how to pull nitrogen out of the air to fertilize crops that we could grow and build farms larger and larger more efficiently we had a baby boom we literally had a baby boom 100%. and we had to feed those people so to just shut off animal agriculture altogether is is not possible we cannot physically do it people yep. will starve in the streets even yes. still yes but what i think will happen is there will be a technology at some time and I don't know if it's five years or 10 years or 40 years that could possibly disrupt animal agriculture. And I'm not naive. Like I love, I love every aspect about animal agriculture. I love the farmers. There's no greater romantic in the world than a cattle producer. Like they, they will do it cheaper than anybody else. There's no vertical integration in the cattle industry because the large corporations will never lose the money that a cattleman will lose the money at to live that lifestyle. They do it for the romance. Yep. That's not an abusive relationship. That is a romantic relationship. No, I have to say, and that was, I hear you 100% on that. The, you know, I grew up in the country in Scotland in a farming community. And, you know, my first vision, you know, when you, you know, the a modern day James Herriot is one of the monikers that you, um, Myself you've, given, you've, you've given yourself, which that's, is, a, that's very which humble is, which is a very humble, it's, <laughs> everyone is so humble in this podcast. But when you see your videos and what you're doing, you know, they are engaging. And the farmers that I worked with always had great regard and great respect for their animals. I guess it's just one of the weird things that exists there that we think lambs are really sweet and lovely, and they are, and, and, and cows are beautiful creatures. But ultimately, there's an end goal and there's a reason that they're being produced. But I think generally, and particularly with the farms I was dealing with in the UK, you know, in Scotland, they were well cared for, well treated yeah. animals. And I never had a hint that at that stage that that's the way I wanted to go. It was a larger, for me, it was a larger production and this overseas shipping animals out of Australia that really pushed right. me over the edge. Right. And it was that, but then it was the treatment of the animals on the other end. And how many it was, I don't know. But it was it, the fact it was even one getting sledgehammered was just too much. Right. 
so I completely hear you that I think it is I was attracted to being a vet because of being out there and in the country and the diversity and 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 it was it's interesting watching your videos that I think you capture that and you know I'm saying that as a vegan you know a recent convert vegan but I still enjoy your videos right and I still think that what you do we, as a profession people will probably throw rocks at me because of you know having a conversation with you and and also because with Vetex, you know, we're going to have we're going to have people talking about food production animals in there because it's more important for me that we're caring for each other and we're all in this. And one thing I know for sure is that by God, the vets care more about the animals than people who would replace the vets if we stopped right. looking after them. So I would far rather us be part of that system, um, regardless of my other feelings. I wanted to move on to, you know, I've got this theory and you may have heard it. It's the checkerboard theory where, you know, and it's mostly based from computer science where technology or the, the memory doubles and the, the ability, you know, the processing power of computers is doubling each year and roughly halving in cost. And there's 64 squares in a checkerboard. If anyone's counted them recently and that's incorrect, please let me know. You know, the first half is if you put a grain of rice on each board and you, you each space on you then put double the number so exponential growth the first half is the numbers aren't silly but the second half the numbers just get ridiculous right. and we're moving into that second half of checkerboards in all technological spheres do you see or is there anything on the horizon that you think has a particular chance you know you've mentioned sort of clean meats what do you see in our sector as being the big disruptors whether it's in feedlot work or whether it's in mixed practice or anywhere what are you seeing when you're out there traveling that's really caught your eye as something that might have the chance to really change things yeah so within the food animal sector i certainly think that cellular agriculture this clean meat phenomenon is certainly the the front runner from what i've seen i mean when you look at a country like india uh, you know and you've got middle classes growing there in china we it's like we've had all these benefits and now these countries are now, which were quite, you know, they, they would eat a lot of vegetables and pulses, are now moving to more yeah. meat. Yeah. It seems hard to imagine that the world can support that on a, a scale. Yeah, and, and I think the solution might be both, certainly. We we know we're going to have to feed 9 billion people by 2050. Yeah. So so we do need that augmentation, but a complete replacement. I, I think it is certainly possible. Like I'm very fascinated with cellular agriculture. In July, I'm going to the MIT Media Lab in, in Cambridge and speaking yep. at a cellular agriculture conference to talk about my experiences as to the current state of what's going on. And Are you invested in it yet? No, I've not invested in it. But the largest meat corporations in North America America, in the world have oh, Tyson yeah. Meats, yep. Cargill. They've invested in Memphis Meats, one yep. of these cellular agriculture yes. companies. So that's telling something for sure. Absolutely. Yes. And then to answer your question on the, the veterinary side, I'm a little bit of a tech geek. Like yeah. I, I listen to tech podcasts probably three to four hours a week. So I, I'm staying up on everything. Sensor technology is yep. going to revolutionize. It will be so insane, the amount of, of sensor technology that we'll be able to apply to veterinary medicine. Yep. And the physical exam will be dead. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I've thought about and spoken about a little bit as well is, you know, the telemedicine right now is no better than really a Skype call. Right. 
But, I mean, you say sensor medicine, you're talking about motion sensors, movement that can detect lameness in animals at distance. Absolutely, but um, even blood parameters, like, that, we're so close. We are on the precipice of having better uh, CBC serum cams than what we can run yeah, through a lab. Interstitial cells are going to be far more accurate than blood samples, right? So Exactly, and I think we're so close to that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So one of the big differences between smallies and, and large animals medicine I think has always been the abundance of data and the large you know it's the herd health setting how do you see data influencing the way that we practice medicine in either sector and what do you guys do differently in the large animal side of things and that they're that maybe in the smallie side of things that we can learn from because you guys are always you know it's a system and I think that while we are approaching the point of mass individualization in terms of the way we're trying to think about the delivery of medicine, we're also in this big data, you know, and, and when we're thinking about the collection of data from sensors, you know, looking at companies like IDEX doing more blood profiles and aggregating right. that data for individual animals, but for populations of animals as well locally. Where is this data going to take us? Do you ever spend some time thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really speak on it, but one of the sectors of my practice is research. Okay. And that is that is something that I have that a small animal practitioner doesn't, is I have the ability to formulate an idea and do a randomized clinical test on an idea that I have and I have the power to back it up. I can do real statistics on just a, a harebrained hypothesis so what would that within a population. Like? Give me an example. Yeah, of so, so let's say that I think that this antibiotic, like, and this is just within my own practice because we have such huge numbers. Like, yep. I have a quarter million cows with that I have individual animal health records on that I can manipulate that data and, and run randomized control studies. Yes. So let's say I think that a let's say fluorphenicol is the superior first pull BRD treatment, right? That first pull pneumonia treatment. And I can prove that by then randomizing every treatment of calves that are pulled out of the feedlot that are diagnosed clinically as having pneumonia, they are running a temperature, they have a clinical depression score, and we can run that randomization versus anything that I want versus, and I can get an answer and then that drives the rest of my protocols within my practice. Are companies interested in that data from absolutely we, we yeah. partner with pharma companies all the time my, yeah. my practice has brought to market several very large uh, products that we use within the cattle industry yeah. implants vaccines non-steroidal anti-inflammatories antibiotics they use practices like mine to run the the data through we implement the trial yep. we do all of the work we do the pms we train the staff and we collate all of the data that's a fascinating spin-off. And do you see that sort of knowledge? What other applications do and how can that approach be transferred sideways? You know, we're seeing like big corporatization, big groups of you know, again it's herd exactly. medicine you're, within the corporate. Exactly. Setting. Like I Banfield. think you've already hit it. Exactly. Yeah. The ability to do that that data collection and start running control trials within these large hospitals because the numbers exist. Yeah. And are you able to look back and retrospectively look at these things then? So you would look back over the last 10 years and be able to say, okay, all of the animals that we treated for pneumonia 
we can look back at the various drugs we've used over the last 10 years and look at our response time. Absolutely, and absolutely. And we augment that data all the time. We are continually doing deep nasal swabs and looking at what pathogens are out there and what resistance that we see. And we're constantly building on those data sets for us to do these retrospective type things. And it's not just, it's just not like treatment drugs, but also looking at individual factors like animals, you know, between this weight range that came from this source, from that came from this geography. Antibiotics, obviously, very another of the very big hot topics in veterinary medicine, and particularly, you know, One Health. First of all, do you have an opinion on how much of an influence the use of antimicrobials in farming has and is impacting on human health? And what does the future look like? You know, the pipelines for new antimicrobials are... It's done. Yeah. So what does the future look like? How do we safeguard ourselves and animals moving forward? And where's the fight going to take us from here? Absolutely. So I, I do think that it, it is interconnected. There's no question. It, it is an interconnected system. But if I put blame on anybody, I do put blame on the physicians first for their imprudent use of antimicrobials over the last 60 years. I think that is far more, you know, the MRSA that exists in hospitals, like the I truly believe that was a human problem. That said, we use antimicrobials in animals all the time, yep. and it is certainly interconnected. I, I always kind of have this debate of what happens if you buy a steak, you're not going to buy a steak, but you, you buy a steak, okay, and it has MRSA on it, yep. okay? It has MRSA on it, and you bring it home. What happens to that, to that bug? You kill it, right? You cook it on you're both sides, yep. and what happens to a piece of bacteria that has multiple drug resistance genes to it when it's cooked nothing nothing dies it dies right so as long as you're doing relatively good meat hygiene and yep. food safety yep. you're probably fairly safe right but yes there's that environmental impact as well there certainly has been studies that shown you know gene transfer through wind you know into human populations certainly in, in countries like asia where there's a lot of imprudent use of antimicrobials yeah. and a lot more concentration of food animal and humans there's certainly that circulation interaction there is going to be a continual clamping down on antimicrobials in food animal production as yep. the years go by. Yeah. Regardless as to why, I don't think it, it really matters. It just will. The Europeans are leading the charge. And if we want to be trade partners within North America, we're going to have to gradually follow suit. So our ability to use antimicrobials, whether that's forced through trading partners or whether that's forced through non-effect, is going to happen either way. Right, right. Eventually it's going to happen. What happens then? We're going to have to then go continually improve when what we're doing and going backwards. Once again, going back to that, why does animal agriculture exist to begin with? Right. It was through that industrialization necessity, and we were also created antibiotics basically at the same time. Yeah. So, of course, you're going to put it into that system, and now that system is dependent on it. But hopefully with continual improvement, we're going to be able to improve the management to then be able to decrease our reliance on them. Hmm. It's going to be some interesting times for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Okay, well, let's segue because I know we are, uh, you know, we're, we're probably, you know, not blessed with enormous amounts of time here today. I wanted to ask you and I move you across into more of your technology background. And, you know, you've done a great job with branding yourself and content production. And I know that a lot of listeners to the podcast it's almost like the holy grail of how you know we've just been in a, a doing a little session on 
how to generate clients and generate new business revenue through digital activities. You've done a good job of, you know, amazing job really of creating a, a brand. What was the motivation to start it and how is it impacting your business such that it's worth doing? Because your audience, I wonder, I wonder who your audience is. It's clearly a lot of people watch it, but the content's very engaging. And I think it's engaging across who might be the original intended audience. So talk me through why you started it, who is the intended audience, and what's been the real benefit of that approach for you? And maybe just for people who don't know you, give us a little bit of the background of what it is that you do to build your brand. Yeah, for sure. I think you hit it on the head. So first off, my brand is... Cody Krillman Calvet. I've set it out to be the Calvet, right? There's not a lot of Calvets out there, and I want it to be that one. Yeah. So I create a, a digital chronological storytelling of my life, a vlog. Yeah. Uh, this kind of getting in the truck with me and sharing my day with me, kind of all of the aspects, meeting my clients, seeing the cases I'm attending to, the externs that I have with me, my technicians, and my family, like the all-encompassing of my life, of my life as Cody Krillman Calvet. I have to say, very, very good music. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Excellent <laughs> taste of music, sir. I actually don't. Fun fact about me, when I don't have anybody in the truck with me, I will have Taylor silence. Swift. Nothing. I don't listen to <laughs> not music. Not Taylor Swift. I don't listen. Outside of my <laughs> vlog, I do not listen to music. I do love Taylor Swift. <laughs> but yeah, no, so I'm not a music guy at all. So my, my target, my purpose for all Who of this. Who chooses your music then? I do. Yeah, you choose it. I do, but out of that necessity right, of that right. engagement, right? Yes. That, that's not my natural... I've actually built not at my least two or three thing. playlists based on the choose. <laughs> I'm like, wait for Cody's next blog because that's great music there. Yeah. So I started all of this to market my veterinary services. Yep. That was it. And the reason that I went with video is I was once again just doubling down on my strengths. Yep. I had tried writing. I had tried Instagram. I had tried. There's only so many different platforms that we can communicate with media, right? right it's right. written word. It's audio. And it's yes. video. Yes. There's nothing else. Yes. There's absolutely nothing else. So I was just doubling down on video. And if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to the best degree that I can. So I had no experience with video editing, with shooting, production. But I knew that I had something a little bit more special with video. Yeah. So that's why I came up with that. But just to market my veterinary services within a super hyper local market that yep. when a cattle producer got mad at their vet and it was time to change that the next person that they thought of was Cody. When I say cow vet, you say Cody. That was the entire but purpose. 25,000 plays, you know, you like you're getting that per episode. Yeah. It's a fairly normal. There's not 25,000 cow you know, producers right. in Alberta, right? right? So, so, but there's multiple targets that I am going for because there's multiple things that I'm doing. Yeah. There's a human resource component. Yeah. One of my huge demographics is veterinary students, right? Right. right. Or prospective veterinary students. Yes. Because I'm running multiple veterinary practices. I'm trying to bring them into my sales funnel yeah. of them buying into my story, wanting to be part of my story because I want to hire them. So I'm, I'm giving that. So I'm speaking to them. I'm speaking to the cattle producers. Yes. And I'm speaking to veterinary students and I'm speaking to other veterinarians, right? Those are my target markets. And that is more broad. But on top yeah. of that, you're exactly right. There's also this other segment where I get comments on YouTube all the time of people saying, I don't know how I got here. Like I live in a city <laughs> and I'm not interested in veterinary medicine and I'm not interested in animals at all, but I'm addicted to you, right? I'm addicted to your personality. I just 
you know, somebody who had just spent 40 hours watching every single one of my videos. Like, I, I haven't done the calculation, but I think it takes like 48 or 50 hours to watch through my entire video catalog. Right, right. And people will then message me at the it. end of two weeks and be like, so I just did this so and I'm from bin- a city. They just box setted your whole, like, exactly. just binge watched exactly. Cody and Kobeck. So there Modern is day James there is people that have no sort of they're not in my target audience right. that I have captured just because of the engaging storytelling. How long when you had this idea? How long did you have to work at that before the idea took off? And I asked the question from a position of I think that a lot of people struggle with patience and with commitment, and when they don't get instantaneous results, right. and, I, and I think this is true of you know the generation of veterinarians that's coming through at the minute i think this is true of practice owners when they try something new and it doesn't work they throw it out maybe it's part of the human condition these days in our uber attention deficit world that we now live in you know we're analog beings in this digital world and we're just getting pulled in so many directions how long did it take for the show to get traction and what were the big the big points the learning points along the ways where you were like that was a good move that worked or you know, what were the throwaway things that didn't work so good? I'd been thinking about what to do with video for quite a long time. Yeah. I was trying to reverse engineer that relationship, that like connection that I have to other video people, right? Like to Casey Neistat, like that connection that you feel that like you're along for a ride on a skateboard yeah. and you think you could hang out with them and be best friends with them, right? Like right. I was trying to recreate that and reverse engineer it, but it took me a long time to even formulate like that's a vlog. That's like a daily digital documentation of my life that that's what it should look like so i was looking to create that connection there's no question how long does it take you to create an episode so and episodes your episodes vary in length but typical length of time to that it takes to that you play time and then how long does it take in the collection of that content and then the editing of the content yeah so the collection of it is almost no time because i'm literally just throwing up a gopro or a phone as i'm being a veterinarian yeah you know i might take an extra minute in the parking lot as i'm doing my cold open yep but not very much time for the creation of that. Yeah. The editing itself takes four hours, typically. You're doing that? Have you got yes. someone else doing that? I, I do all the editing. Yeah. And then that would create a seven to 20 minute video, essentially, yep. after yep. four hours. Some take three hours, and I've had some videos take me 16 hours to Word. do. So you have a wife, two young kids. Yes. As I recall, you work pretty hard long days when you work in large animal medicine. Typically. Kind of brutal work on your body where do you find the time and there's no you're not doing this every day you're doing it every week i put out typically 100 per year 100 per year okay so a couple episodes a week yeah so that's you're looking at eight hours edit time yeah so that's a whole other day's work yeah and you're already quite busy running one business three practices as a separate business and everything else that you do how do you manage your time to get that content out so I don't think it's really a time question because there's 24 hours in a day. Right. Like that's a lot of time in a day, right? So first off, I cut out the stupid stuff. Right. Like the Game of Thrones, watching Game of yeah, Thrones. Yeah, box set. Yeah. Right? I don't do stuff like that. I don't watch sports. I don't yeah. 
watch TV. Like I, I spend time with my family and yep. I work. I work as a cow vet. I work as a businessman and I work as a video content creator. Yes. And, and that's it. But you're right. Like that was a consideration. Like when am I going to do that? Yes. So I, I do it in the evening after my wife goes to bed. Yep. So I'm not taking away from family. Yep. I can't take away from clinical. Secret to any happy marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I do remember about like three or four weeks in, my wife said, so you're never coming to bed again? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, essentially. It's pretty much it. <laughs> but yeah, I just, she goes to bed and I do it. But I don't think that it's a time issue. I think it's an effort issue, right? Right. Because I have that feeling. Remember yeah. that feeling that, that I always need in my life? That yes. like burning desire that, that this is my only chance. This is my only chance in life to do anything at all. That's it. I only get this one so shot. Don't freaking waste it. Exactly. So that's what drives me to instead of you know sending it in and and drinking ten beer at night and watching Game of Thrones, like or create something or do 100%, something. Hundred percent. How much of your new business do you attribute to the show? A lot. Yeah. So how my, much to word of mouth? And I mean, we were talking. It's like it's well, probably it's not all a straight line. Exactly. It's a big, and messy I want, yeah, I wanted to bring that up in your session. I'm like, because that word of mouth is so much predicated on that that celebrity thing, yeah. right? So it is just this continuing. But but my practice has grown immensely. So I was my practice was three veterinarians when we had started. Yes. And now I'm almost up to eight veterinarians. Yeah. Like like we're in the process of so hiring almost three X. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. It, it has been spectacular and. A lot of it is new clients, and it's such a weird thing. I think it's what's even more important than even that that growth, which is one of the most important things. It's a very important thing. Yes. But one of the most important things is what happens when I interact with that client the first time because of it, right? Okay. I step out of my truck, and they greet me as an old friend and a trusted veterinarian, and I've never even met them. Right. They know my backstory. They trust me as an individual. They trust me as a veterinarian. They knew what my family's up to. They ask about a case that I've seen. And do you know how rare that is to recreate? Like, there's no other way to well, you, recreate The that. only other way you could possibly recreate it is to have been with that person as a client for a decade. Exactly. Because in food animal, it's not so different in, in small animal, but in food animal, I'd only get one or two touch points if everything was going good on a ranch right. per year right. to create that relationship. Right. And that was best case scenario that I was that vet within my practice that yes. saw that person. Yes. And now I'm stepping out of my truck the first time with a new client and they trust me. Yeah. So it's, it's the acquisition of trust through a- absolutely. honest, entertaining, engaging content that shows off the real you. Exactly right. So there, if anyone's listening who's interested in this, it's kind of a little roadmap to how you might go about creating your own. I think it's all, like so much this is just about being the local celebrity in yeah. your area. Like when you set out, what were your objectives? Like had you any idea that it would have the success that it's had? Because I mean, and congratulations on it. I mean, you must be pushing over a quarter of a million plays or views five million on youtube and five million on facebook are you actually doing the maths on that you'd be about half a million a year of yeah. plays is that right yeah it's, an, it's a phenomenal amount watch time is even the more spectacular one like youtube watch time yeah oh it's crazy all the way through it's so crazy. Well, just the total amount of, of oh, human the time. Of human time. Content. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's insane. Like 40. Whereas, yeah. Like 40 years a day. On your shows? Yeah. Holy. Just on YouTube. It's amazing. 40 years <laughs> of time being that's, wasted watching a crazy cow vet. Watching cows. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, I think 
I enjoyed your episode where you were having a tin can shooting match. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's like but something that's just that goofing I around afterward. Exactly. And, and it was one of the things everywhere. you enjoy with you know, large animal stuff was you could always have a laugh. And I, I would always go play rugby. I played rugby. And, um, you know, you'd, you'd always be out in the farms and then you'd be back playing rugby with the farmers. And that's the, the reason I became a cow vet. One, I guess one thing people kind of misconceive that being a cow vet is my passion. So first off, I chose being a cow vet because of the people. Right. And I think that's where I derive so much happiness from my day to day is because the people cows and dogs and cats are ungrateful beasts right if you're looking for acceptance and for personal worth from the work that you're doing as a veterinarian from a medical perspective you're going to be pretty disappointed but if you're finding you know those connections with people that is where that true self-worth comes from and where better to get that than farmers from my people right like that's where i come from so i love that so much that day-to-day interaction with those producers Okay, so I am always one eye on the clock. I feel like we are so just scratching the <laughs> surface. And this is incidentally the first we'll do podcast. A part two of, again. No, 100%. This is the first podcast I've ever had with a, a pint of beer in my hand. <laughs> and so it's probably better that it, it, it's not like a super extended version. Otherwise, heaven knows where we'd end up. So we just passed an hour. I think I really feel like we're scratching the surface of so many issues here. We'd have a great conversation. I'm going to segue over to our short form question. So rapid fire now. Okay, rapid fire. Let's um, go. And and you don't have like you can answer them any ways you like. Okay, but they are short questions and far more structured than the rest of my okay. <laughs> wandering nonsense. So first question is: What are you most proud of in your career and why? Don't know. <laughs> I'm not a very like. I'm narcissistic, absolutely, but I'm also right. Come on, video boy. Put I'm, the mic I'm, in the I'm right also <laughs> I'm also humble at the same yep. time, right? Yeah. So I hate that proud question. Like yep. I truly do hate that proud question. I'm just I'm okay, most me, proud that me, I'm happy, right? Well, that's a good answer. Well, let me ask the different question then. What has been the most impactful thing that you've done in your career that's made the biggest difference? I would say the the veterinary student engagement and inspiration, which I didn't expect to do. And that was not my goal at all. But I get so many messages from veterinary students from all across the world about a single comment that my videos are the only reason why they're keeping going, why they're studying, why they can even fathom finishing this round of midterms, this round of finals. And the reason that they say that is because they can see light at the end of the tunnel, that there's a veterinarian out there that enjoys what they do. Because the vet students right now, they're stuck in this bleeding culture of pessimism and you know, of suicide and all these terrible things. And this is what they think they're getting into. It has penetrated so deep into them. Why? I have to say that I'm noticing that as well. Like the stress levels and the, the things that seem to be happening to our students. There's something not healthy about that. Yeah. And for these guys to be that stressed whilst they're at college, like I had a college, I had a blast, but then I had the, I had very much the attitude of, like I got 51%. I was annoyed that I spent 1% too much time <laughs> studying. Now that did result, and I'm, I'm not condoning this, veterinary students, if you're listening, I'm not necessarily condoning this as your approach. But yeah, that did result in a couple of 29%ers. <laughs> but that was because I was playing rugby for the university and didn't show up to parasitology lectures for like the first eight weeks before the exam. So... But I was never the academic person who was super into that. I wanted to get 
every drop out of life I could have possibly gotten at university and was heavily into sports. And I came out of that with a veterinary degree, which was a nice little secondary <laughs> follow-up thing. Why do you think veterinary students are struggling so much? And I've noticed I've just gone straight from short form back to long form in the <laughs> usual every messy, single, messy way that I do Every single these short form you're going to get into, we're going to end up a long form. <laughs> We can't because we're, we're going to get picked up by buses and taken to a... My first ever baseball match is coming up, but that's a dis- total distraction. So so I think I think that competitiveness, that yeah. crazy competitiveness that's just... I think it just amplifies every single year. Like, it's changed so much since I've got into vet school. And now this concept around average. Like, these students don't appreciate how how top they are right they are the cream of the cream of the cream yes they're the smartest doing like the hardest program in the entire world right there's nothing more there's nothing past that like there is absolutely nothing past that and then they get in to this mindset that average is bad average in vet school is bad and they're just stuck in this feedback loop of this expectation to be above average but they don't yeah. recognize that they are like the it's impossible 0.01% it's so it, amazing it, it's impossible in any situation you're always going to grade along a curve when you're put in with a, a, a set you know a, a cohort of people who are as good as you you, you can't win by definition like 99% of people are not going to win so that pressure cooker of that plus student debt plus yeah. the, the bleed of this pessimism within the yeah. within the culture of veterinary medicine that I think is becoming endemic there is a whole language springing up around and we've developed terms that I feel are not helpful imposter syndrome being one compassion fatigue yeah, I would agree 100% being another that are almost enabling of us to feel broken rather than to look for like I think imposter syndrome is just a normal part of learning, surely. Right. Like not feeling like you're good enough. Heck, that just means you're growing. Right. Like the last guest I had on the RAF fighter pilot had a great way of putting it. He said, you exist in, when you're learning, you're either comfort, stretch, or panic. And we need to be putting more people in comfort, uh, sorry, in stretch. And what we're currently doing is we're putting a lot of people in panic. Right. And so they're, they, they don't have the safety net of failure or they don't feel like they've got a safety net of failure. And it's just not a healthy place for us to be. Well, and for them, failure is suicide. Like, right, right, it's the because end. It's like, that's all everybody is thinking about right yeah. now is is this happening in veterinary medicine. Yeah. And it's that expectation too. Like that, I think that's like one of my only keys to life is, is living life without expectation, yes. right? And gratitude. I'm so incredibly grateful. So gratitude and expectation, I think, goes a very long ways. Okay, so that brings us nicely back into short form, which is great. And I was going to say, what do you think you do better than anyone else? I know you're, you're a humble guy and you've done some really cool things, but what's your superpower? What's Cody Creelman, Kovat's superpower? I think it's doubling down on my strengths and not worrying about what anybody thinks about my weaknesses. Yeah. Like not having that fear. I have a thousand weaknesses and I don't care if anybody calls me out on it. <laughs> I just have, I'm a one trick pony. I'm literally a one trick pony, but I just double down on those things over and over and over again. And I have no fear because what is somebody going to say to me? What are they going to say? Nothing but names. And who cares about names? Yeah. So, 
are we picking up this piano music good in the background? Probably. <laughs> I think it's somewhat nice. Yeah, we are. We are. Cody, you should get your video on that as well. Like we've got a pianist. So for the audio listeners out there, we have a baby grand piano. We're at the Westin, and the sessions for the day have ended. So the hubbub has increased, and we're probably going to miss the buses out. To we're being taken to baseball tonight. So we will. We wind up with. Let's wind up with our, our last few questions here then. Okay. And okay, so if you could change let's imagine you are a god of veterinary medicine. As you, you know, obviously are. No, come on. <laughs> I love making people feel so uncomfortable with that. You're flying around there. If you could change any one thing, what would it be? And why? Once again, I'm dumbfounded. I hate like negative questions and like, what's wrong? What's the worst thing that you like about your job? Like, like the one thing about about me is I'm not passionate about being a Calvet. I'm passionate about veterinary medicine as a whole. Like, I love the history and the culture and the yeah. future and the business and the medicine. Like, even in small animal, like when I was in small animal in final year i won the small animal orthopedics award like i love every <laughs> right. aspect of it yeah like i i think that it is an absolutely beautiful thing but if i do have to change just just like one thing it's that that positivity versus negativity i wish that the profession so much just had more positive connotations around it within right within this this expectation and this this people recognizing you know where are you going to derive self-worth and value from yourself and go yeah. after that yeah and stop chasing it within the clinic stop chasing it within saving that dog you have to find it for yourself and we keep looking back to the animals because that's why we went into it like within canada veterinarians five years out of veterinary school 50 percent wish they never went into that that is heartbreaking that's the same right that's exactly the same in the uk and i just did a survey at bsaba of i asked people to score whether they would recommend like what score zero to ten would they get like net promoter score what's your zero to ten would they how likely were they to recommend a career in veterinary medicine to their friends or anyone looking to start out and the answer was 10% would recommend it highly the middle ground of people who were sort of me you know it's okay was about 30% it was about 58% were detractors yeah wouldn't recommend it at all that's terrible it's super sad which for a career that that you have enjoyed, I've enjoyed. Like, I think that's part of the reason why I do what I do as well. Okay, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or you have given? So it's not quite advice, direct advice, but I was in a scholarship interview one time. This was when I was in high school. Yeah. And the interviewer asked me, what are 10 things you could do with a paper clip that aren't the usual things? And I know this sounds well, like really it. crazy, but I got to two, okay? I panicked. I froze. Yeah. But looking back on that, I've carried that with me forever because the answer is infinite, is absolutely infinite. That that's how I wanted my brain to work, to just carry on and come up with solution after solution after solution after solution. And 
I didn't have that before because I wasn't thinking that way. But now, like, there is no end of solutions to a problem. Right. That was the problem, the question. What could you do with a paperclip? That's yeah. the problem. And the solutions are endless. You just have to think outside of the box. And at times, I feel like that I am looked at as the only crazy person, right? That, that it's a world of sane people looking at me like a crazy person. Yep. And I look at the world like everybody else is insane. <laughs> I'm the only sane one. And yeah. that goes back to that paperclip question. Right, right. Because it's infinite. And what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or been given? I know you don't like the negative questions, but these ones are always funny. I hate negative questions. Well, I certainly was told that I couldn't do this, right? I was right. told that my marks weren't high enough. I was yep. told that veterinary medicine wasn't for me by some very close people to me. And I'm just too stubborn to listen to anybody <laughs> ever. And I'm more wrong than I am right but that doesn't really matter. I've always had to learn the hard way. So I like that would have been the worst advice that I could have ever taken. But really, like advice like that, I'm either going to do what I already thought I was going to do or right. I wouldn't. Now, I think you'll have a good answer to this one. What's an app or a favorite tool that helps you get stuff done that you've been working with in the last year? More in the last year. I love the like the Google ecosystem yes. because it's it's seamless it's integrated with everyone our clinic runs on on google like google hangouts we have this collective mind that we're all talking we're checking in with each other out in the fields i'm saying i'm done at this farm i'm done at that farm like it, it is beautiful to us all have this collective mind everything is integrated everything is smart the ability to search all of the information all of those chats within gmail that they're showing up on hangouts like that, that entire ecosystem runs our practice and it's so simplistic too like. really yeah what book i'm guessing and we haven't touched on this but i'm guessing that you read quite a lot you don't do box sets <laughs> but you've certainly learned some stuff along the ways yeah is there a favorite book that you've encountered in the last 12 months that's made a, a significant impact on your life not in the 12 months but i do have a book that like i need to say go so this it's the entire book series by Gary Vaynerchuk. Yes. So Crushing It, The Thank You Economy, the Ask Gary V book, uh, Jab, 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 Right Hook. Like that entire set is really just opened my eyes to how to think from a business standpoint, how to think from a marketing standpoint to provide right. that value, provide value, provide value, provide value, and then get the permission to ask. Like that concept has been huge for me. And that's, that's what I do with my videos. I'm just beating people over the head with constant Calvet value and then kind of getting that permission to then ask like, hey, do you want to sign up for this newsletter? Do yes. you want to uh, buy this merchandise? Do you want to become a client? Yes. So that whole series, Gary Vaynerchuk has it going on. I thoroughly second that and um, been a big influence in my career as well. Big fan of it. In fact, my first book I wrote conversationally based on crushing it yeah i thought very much of well that's a great way of writing it exactly. matches to me so that's that's why i did okay we're going to wrap this up with a couple more questions so if you could send one tweet or it's going to be a tweet we're going to pull you away from youtube which seems silly okay or you could your last outro to the world ever and the whole world can see this thing like what would it say what would, you, would, what would your last message to the world be? It would just be the fist emoji. Like <laughs> palpation nation fist. <laughs> That's it. 
It'd be like, peace out. Peace out. Done. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... I think I could genuinely talk to you for ages and ages. Let's wrap it up because people are starting to wave at us to tell us to get on a bus and they're going to leave us here. Um, Cody, where can people, if they for some reason don't know you exist, where can they follow your show? We're going to link all of this up through the show notes, of course. Um, Where can they follow you? Where they get in touch? Where can they send you your questions? Are you happy to get questions about anything we've talked about, about the career in veterinary medicine, about how to have fun, like stay positive? So much stuff people could learn from you. Where can they hook up with you? Absolutely. So the the easiest thing is to Google me and you'll get a straight line to my website, straight line to my Facebook and my YouTube. It's Cody Creelman, Calvet, and you will see it all. Got it. All right, brother. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's amazing we've taken so long to actually cross paths. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm very, very glad that we did. It's been an absolute joy. It. And um, I'll take you up on the offer of a, a round two for sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. So thank you to Cody for his time and energy on the show. Wasn't he a good guest? Don't forget to shout out to him and say thanks for coming on. And thank you to you for listening. Now, leave me a little rating on iTunes if you're enjoying the content. That's always very well received. And two other things. I do a sister podcast called Freewheeling Business Q&A Show. If you're into the running of veterinary practices, you may enjoy the show. To check that out on iTunes called Freewheeling. And of course, Vetex, the graduate community. If you have a young vet and we wish me to mentor them then jump on to drdavenickel.com forward slash vetex until next time be safe be well be happy from blunt dissection this is dr dave out